This week's parsha is Parshas Devarim. Devarim means words. And this week we also begin the fifth and final book of the Torah, known in Hebrew as the book of Devarim, and in English as the book of Deuteronomy. Now the word Deuteronomy actually means the repetition of the Torah. And indeed, our sages call the book of Devarim Mishnah Torah, the repetition of Torah, because it has a very different tone and tenor than the rest of the Torah. It is essentially a repetition of a lot of the core principles and mitzvahs that we've seen already prior, and now that the Jewish people are on the doorstep of Israel, it begins its 37 days before the death of Moshe, and he's imparting them with the lessons, with the wisdom, with the insights, and with the instructions that are going to be needed uh, for their entry into Israel and their reintegration into the normal rules of life. You know, in the desert, during these 40 years, they're living what's known as a supernatural way of life. God is involved with them intimately, directly, every single day. They're eating manna, and they're consuming, uh, they're eating the manna, and then they're having the water coming out of a rock, and they have Moshe as a direct link with God. All their physical needs are addressed, and all they need to do is worry on the, on, on the spiritual needs. That's not a normal way of living. And that's indeed not the intended way of living. The Almighty did not want to give the Torah to angels, because angels, well, they don't have a physical aspect of the life that they need to contend with, and therefore they don't have the conflict that embodies, no pun intended of course, what it means to be a human, to have a soul and a body both jockeying and vying for primacy in someone's life. And we know the Torah, the objective of the Torah, is to provide that extra power and the oomph behind emboldening and empowering the soul. And of course, what's holding it back, what is the uh, the headwinds, is the body and uh, and the world and living as a human needs to live. In the desert during these 40 years, they didn't have those issues. They didn't have to worry about making a living and they have to worry where they're going to live because they were just part of the community and having all their physical needs taken care of them by God. They're about to enter the land of Israel. And overnight, they're going to have to transition into living in the world. To make that transition is very important uh, for them to be prepared because there are going to be tests and challenges facing them that they're maybe not ready for or certainly not accustomed to experiencing. This is a brand new generation. They've known nothing besides for the supernatural level. Many of them weren't even born when they were living in slavery in Egypt. And therefore, Moshe dedicates the last days of his life to preparing the people for it. And it is recorded in the book of Devarim, all those things that happens. Now, it's important to note, of course, there are some mitzvos that are not just repeated. In fact, of, uh, of the about uh, 200 mitzvos, I'm sorry, over the, uh, the 100 mitzvos that are in the book of Devarim, roughly 70 of them are, are completely new. And many of them are repeated, sure, but most of them are new. So I want to I start with the Ramban. The Ramban has an introduction to the book as he does for every book in the Torah. And he really kind of positions 
what the book of Devarim is about. He starts, Hasefer said, this book, its matter is known, it's the Mishnah Torah, the repetition of Torah. Yivayerbo Moshe Rabbeinu Moshe will clarify to the generation that's entering the land the majority of the mitzvot that are needed for Israel. And the Ramban begins by addressing a question, how come the mitzvot pertaining to the Kohanes and the Levites, given to us primarily in the book of Leviticus, are not repeated? So why does it not repeat that? He says, well, the Kohanim, they are very assiduous, and therefore you don't need to repeat them uh, once it was told once. However, with the general population, it's prudent to repeat the mitzvot that are uh, going to be relevant to them, sometimes to increase the understanding. Maybe they got the mitzvah, but it wasn't so relevant to them, so they didn't understand the exact details of the mitzvah. Uh, or perhaps uh, other times it is to add a stern warning for the, that they should be prepared uh, for all the, the possibilities. And the Ramban notes that many of the themes in the book are going to be re- uh, relevant to Avodah to idolatry. That's going to be a huge issue that the nation will have to contend with once they're in the land. And therefore, it's important for them to be ready to face and confront this uh, formidable challenge. Additionally, says the Ramban, there's some mitzvot in this book that weren't mentioned at all. For example, Yibum, Leverite marriages, uh, Motsi Shemra, when someone claims that uh, his wife was unfaithful, divorce, uh, matters of false witnesses, and he gives a whole list and it says etc. at the end. Now, he points out something very important here. He says, these mitzvot were originally given at Sinai during the first year of the Jewish people's travels throughout the wilderness before the spies were sent out. And the Rabban is of the position that there were no new mitzvot given. The only reason why they show up over here is because maybe they weren't transmitted to the Jewish people or it wasn't finalized in the Torah until now for a specific reason. Perhaps he suggests because these mitzvot are not going to be relevant to those that left Egypt and therefore they don't need to be told, be told it or perhaps because it's not so common and therefore he didn't mention it uh, only to the generation that's entering the land of Israel. As a side note, it's interesting, uh, among the lists of uh, mitzvot that the Ramban here mentions, that he adds at the end, he qualifies, they're not quite common, is divorce. Which is interesting, because divorce, I would say, today, is quite common. And the Ramban says, well, it's so rare, it so infrequently happens, we don't need to tell it uh, to multiple generations. And then the Ramban prepares us for the beginning, which is really relevant to our Parsha. And before Moshe is going to explain the Torah and the mitzvot to the Jewish people, he's going to give them criticism and rebuke and remind them of their sins. How many times they rejected and rebelled against God, 
and how God, in response, treated them with nothing but kindness. And that is to demonstrate God's kindness and benevolence to the Jewish people, and also to prepare the nation uh, that they should not return to behave in that terrible way, in that sinful way, as prior, and further, to give them confidence that their future is bright. Why? Because someone may suggest, we can't inherit the land. Everyone sins, after all. What happens when someone sins? The Almighty, with great fury, comes down upon him and punishes him. And there can be a, a feeling of hopelessness for someone and particularly someone who has a keen understanding of the palpability of the existence of the Almighty, for someone to say, I just give up. I, 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 there's no way I could do this. I, I'm a sinner and, and I'm trying hard maybe, yes, but it's hard for me to free myself of this way of life. And therefore, Moshe tells them that, and, and demonstrates them that your forebearers, your fathers, in the wilderness, they sinned and repeated multiple times. But the Almighty, in His kindness and in His mercy, He forgave them. And He provided an avenue for atonement. And so to you, the children of those people, you should be aware, and this is an important lesson for you to take with you, you too, if you sin, you can and you ought to repent and the Almighty will accept that. And the, the Ramban, just as a side note here, he, he invokes um, a, a, a theological understanding that is um, evident in, in Jewish philosophy that the Almighty has different ways of treating us. It's known as the midos of God, the characteristics of God. Of course, this is not describing God himself. This is describing the way God treats us. And if God treated us with midas hadin, with judgment, then any sin would immediately evoke a harsh and unforgiving punishment. And thankfully, the mind does not treat us like that, because if he did, we wouldn't last very long. Thankfully, the Almighty treats us with rachamim, with mercy, with kindness, with benevolence. He is slow to anger, and that, of course, gives us a chance, at least an opportunity, to maybe become great people despite all the bumps and obstacles along the path of our ascent and our journey. So let's begin the parsha. The parsha begins. The parsha begins with a very strange verse. These are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan, so that's on the eastern side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plains, opposite Suf between Paran, between Tophel, and Lavan, and Chatseros, and Dizahav. So it seems like the verse is placing us where this event happened. Moshe speaking to the whole nation, where? On the other side of the Jordan, in the Midbar, in the wilderness, in the plains, opposite Suf, between Paran, and Tophel, and Lavan, and Chatseros, and Dizahav. The problem is, is that, of course, the plains and the Midbar which is the desert, the wilderness, those are different places, right? Uh, the Jewish people, they went through the wilderness, and now they're on the plains of Moab. Uh, 
opposite Jericho on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. So how can Moshe be speaking to the Jewish people in the same, you know, one time in different places? Additionally, these locations, Tofel and Lavon and Chatzerot, they don't actually exist. And Rashi tells us that if you scour the entire scripture, you won't find that these places actually exist. So what is the meaning behind this verse? So Rashi, of course, peels uh, the veneer and actually describes an entire lesson, an entire lecture, an entire discourse that Moshe is giving them simply in this word, in this verse, in this sentence. Rashi tells us these everything Moshe is telling them right now is words of critique and rebuke, but he's doing it in a veiled, in a concealed, in a subtle way. The honor of the Jewish people is at stake. They're being attacked, so to speak, or, or at least their misdeeds are being remembered or being mentioned. And therefore, Moshe does not want to do it brashly. Moshe doesn't want to make huge, bombastic announcements to point out with great detail the misdeeds of the Jewish people. Instead, what he does is he hints at it. So, for example, Rashi tells us that uh, in this verse, Moshe is telling them that they complained in the Midbar, right when they left Egypt, oh, if only we could die, number one. Uh, Number two, Moshe is invoking the fact that they sinned with the idols due to the daughters of Moab in the end of the book of Numbers, where the daughters of Moab, they seduce the Jews uh, first to sin and finally to commit idolatry. Further, Moshe is invoking the sins of their fathers by the splitting of the sea. When the Jewish people were trapped, they were cornered, they had no place to escape. What did they tell Moshe? Are there insufficient graves in Egypt? You took us out of here to die? We couldn't die there? And that is Mul Sof, Ben Paranu Ben Tofel, what does that mean? That's invoking the sins when the Jewish people were complaining about the manna. And they said, oh, who needs this? This is so terrible. Further, when they sinned with the spies. And Chatzay wrote, well, that refers to the sin and the rebellion and the mutiny of Korach. And finally, Zahav. Zahav means gold. That refers to the golden calf. Thus, Moshe, in this first verse, he is spinning a whole tale here of critique of the Jewish people and going through their history since they left Egypt until now and pointing at every location where the Jewish people sinned. But it's all hidden as if this is what Moshe, where Moshe is speaking, what really it's what Moshe is speaking, but also it's done in a very hidden way. And I think this is maybe the one of the themes of the parsha, maybe perhaps the theme of the book, that Moshe is trying to give criticism to the nation. But why does someone give criticism? It's possible that someone can give criticism to show how good they are and to virtue signal and to say, look at me, I'm good and you're bad. You're a sinner and I could detail with precision, outline, and delineate all your sins. 
And that, of course, is bad midos. That's bad character. And that, of course, is not going to contribute to a person actually improving. If you want to help someone, you could with criticism. It's a very powerful, very potent tool. But it's also a very dangerous one. And it's a potentially very volatile one. Because when you criticize someone, you're, you're essentially attacking them. You say, well, there's something wrong with you. It needs to be fixed. And you know what? People don't like hearing that. And they get defensive. And they fight back. Well, are you so much better? Who are you? Why are you uh, being, uh, being sanctimonious? Look at you. You're a hypocrite. You've done worse things. And you're so clean. And you're so pure. And you're so special. That is the knee-jerk reaction to all criticisms. Moshe here is showing us how to do criticism. He is not attacking the nation directly, firstly. The criticism, criticism is all veiled. And we'll see further, Moshe is going to s- describe it in a way that is so non-confrontational or so possible, at least, for it to be accepted. The Talmud tells us that we have to rebuke someone if they're going to accept. If they're not going to accept, then we must not rebuke them. What this means is that there's two kinds of rebuke. There's rebuke where someone just feels good when they are able to denigrate someone else, and that's a sin. And you know what? That won't reap any good results because the person can sense that you don't have my best interests in mind. You just want to make me feel bad. And that's going to evoke not a feelings of, or emotions of repentance, of atonement, of rectification. It's going to instead prompt them to fight back and to point out the misdeeds of the criticizer. And then there's constructive criticism. Con- Criticism that actually contributes to someone behaving in a different way. Not recoiling, not lashing back, instead accepting it and being able to internalize and ingrain the lessons within them and actually changing. Moshe showing how, how that's done. The first thing you, we see over here is that the criticism is veiled. It's it's hints. And also, he's preserving the honor. He's allowing the nation to save face. He's not directly attacking them. That's number one. Verse number two here. He tells them it's 11 days from Chorev through the path of Mount Seir until Kadesh Barnea. This seems to, again, piggyback on the previous verse. It's telling us where we are. It's 11-day travel from Choreb. Choreb is Mount Sinai. So the place they are now is an 11-day travel from Mount Sinai. Now, what is the significance of that? Why is it important to tell us how many days we are travel from Mount Sinai? Why is that relevant at all? So Rashi, of course, tells us that this, again, is another form of criticism. Moshe is telling them that the distance from Sinai to where, uh, to Kadesh Barnea, the place in the verse, is actually 11 days. It, in fact, if you do the math, and Rashi does it for us, it took him only three days to get there. Well, what Moshe is telling them is that they had a golden opportunity to capitalize on Sinai, on 
a nation achieving its apex where the entire nation experienced prophecy at Sinai and they could have right away waltzed into Israel and all of history would have been different. And Moshe is telling them, well, they got, it's 11-day tra- uh, uh, travel from Chorev to Kaddish Barnea. It took them three days. What he's essentially telling them, again, via this circuitous hinting method, is that they were on the doorstep of Israel and they didn't need to have this 40-year sojourn throughout the land, throughout the wilderness. They could have right away reached their destination. But of course, they were, they lost it because of their sinning. Now what's astonishing about this is that Moshe is not only is he not pointing out, telling them, you had it, you could have, you could have had it, but you lost it. He's actually describing the estimated length of the journey, not even the actual length of the journey. Again, we see Moshe is not directly attacking them. He's trying to do it in a very subtle way. Now, I also think that, you know, this, who is he talking to? We read at the end of Numbers that all the people that left Egypt that were there at the sin of the spies, they've all passed. And he's talking to their children. So you would think, if someone is being criticized of their behavior, well then they're defensive. But if someone's being criticized on the behavior of their forebearers, maybe then they'll accept it. So why is Moshe tiptoeing around this criticism and telling them, oh, you, you, you could have done this, you could have had... It's this, this not relevant to them. It's all the things that happened to their, for, to their fathers. I think this, again, demonstrates the point that Moshe was very wary of giving harsh and direct criticism, even if the criticism was not directly related to the people he was discussing, and it was only directed to their fathers. If someone attacks your father, you get defensive as well. Maybe not quite as defensive as you would if they were attacking you, but you get defensive nonetheless. And when you get defensive and you put up your resistance to accepting it, it's less likely to achieve its goal. Moshe wants to make sure that this, this is so critical, what Moshe wants to convey here. He wants to make sure that all potential obstacles towards uh, stopping him from achieving his objective are removed. And it was, continues the verse, in the 40th year, on the 11th month, on the first of the month, Moshe speaks to the Jewish people everything the might instruct him to do after he had smitten Sichon and owed all those nations that were... Um, perilously standing in the way of the Jewish people. Again, why is it significant to be told when this happened? Why is it critical to tell us that this happened right after they captured and conquered Sichon and his nation and Og and his nation? Because Moshe did not want to come off as someone who's just criticizing for criticizing's sake. It's very easy for someone 
to uh, uh, armchair psychologist someone else. What do you have to lose, of course? And that person who is the potential recipient of that, they sense that and they know that. And therefore Moshe wants to show, I I care for you. I am invested for you. We're working hard for your benefit. I'm not just criticizing you for my own, to feel good about myself. And then you would say, well, what does this guy have to gain? Like, what has he done for us lately? And therefore Moshe is only going to tell this right after he does the biggest favor for them. Think about it. Sichon and Ode, these two kings with their empires, the people, well, they were scared that they were going to be killed by them. And their families and their children and their livestock. This was a massive military threat. And comes along Moshe with his leadership, and they totally wipe the floor and destroy these enemies, these threats. And of course, the people naturally are grateful, and they recognize how much they have to be appreciative of Moshe. Then Moshe realizes, oh, when they're grateful to me and they recognize what I do for them, now maybe I have an opening to give them a little words of rebuke. Now they cannot claim, oh, this guy, uh, this Moshe, what has he done for us? And I think, that, you know, the, 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 the Torah is so over the top about this point, I think it's, it's, it's an important lesson for us. You know, as leaders of any type, as bosses or as parents, of course, or as teachers, we have responsibility to rebuke and to direct and to make sure and to channel our children, our employees are doing what they're required of and, and of maximizing their potential. That's our responsibility. But here Moshe shows us how it's done. First of all, it's done in a non-confrontational way. Second of all, you have to make sure that the person knows that you have their best interests at heart. Uh, thirdly, uh, you maybe, you know, Rashi tells us, there's an amazing Rashi here. In verse 3, Rashi tells us that Moshe only criticized the Jewish people before he died. He delayed. He could have done this 30 years prior, but he delayed it right, right before he was going to die. That's when he criticized the nation. Why? So Rashi gives a few reasons. First of all, not to criticize them multiple times. To be the recipient of criticism, it's a very painful experience. And if that repeats itself, then maybe there is a reason to suspect that the person did not does not have my best interest, the, the giver of the criticism does not have my best interest in mind, they just want to berate me and castigate me. Therefore, you criticize, you criticize once. Moshe withheld criticism until he died, until he was about to die, to make sure that he wouldn't do it twice. And furthermore, to not continually embarrass them. If Moshe knows he's about to die, he's not going to see these people for that much longer. They won't have to avoid him every time they meet. And when someone is criticizing another person, they're bringing to the surface the fact that the other person is not good or their deeds are not good. Now, every time they meet, it's almost as if this wound is being once again, erupted. 
and brought to the surface. And that's not fun. And that's not pleasant. Moshe says, well, I'm about to die. They won't see me for that much longer. Now I can mention it. And finally, Rashi says, says something very surprising. Rashi says, Moshe learned a lesson from Jacob. All the way at the end of Genesis, Moshe, I'm sorry, Jacob, he gathered his sons. He was about to die, gathered his sons, and gave them criticism. He says, Moshe, I am going to take a page out of Jacob's book and also not rebuke the nation until I'm about to die. But Rashi says something very astonishing. Rashi says that why did Jacob withhold critiquing his sons until he was about to die? He was worried that had he criticized Ruvain, Ruvain would have abandoned him. He would have lost him. And Ruvain would have joined the tribe of Esau, Jacob's sinful brother. And therefore, he didn't want to lose him, and he withheld until he was about to die. This really shows just how delicately we have to tread about criticizing other people. If you criticize someone, you are potentially breeding alienation. The Reuven may have left Jacob, or at least this was the concern. Reuven will leave Jacob and go join the enemy, go join Esau. Why? Just because the brunt of the criticism is so hard to bear. And I think that's just an astonishing lesson for us, just how careful we have to be and how timidly we have to tiptoe around this issue or carefully have to tiptoe around this issue to, not make, to, to make sure that it does not have negative consequences that can be very, very harmful. And the, essentially the rest of the parsha, Moshe highlights a few episodes in the history of the nation until this point. And first he begins with the appointment of judges. Why is that the first thing that is mentioned? So one of the commentaries says, that Barbernell writes, that Moshe was trying to show that there was an atmosphere of imminence of entering the land of Israel. They were so ready to go and to enter the land that they even started setting up a system of of the judiciary, of, of, of judges and lower courts and higher courts. Of course, that's something you don't do while you're traveling. It's what you do when you're more stable, when you're more sedentary, when you're more settled. Moshe is telling them, we actually set up judges. And all that because we're about to go in, and of course, we blew it. So he details what happens. We were about to leave, about to go into the land of Israel. And the Almighty says... Uh, and Moshe says to the people uh, I can't carry them alone I need to have my lieutenants and Moshe says I took the heads of the tribes wise people known people people that have a righteous character who are going to give uh, who are going to dispense judgment between man and his fellow uh, and provide the judicial needs of the nation. And it highlights what the roles of a judge are, to not show favor or favoritism in judgment, to judge the poor person, the small person, and the large person, the great person alike, to not be afraid of anyone. If you you know you see the mafioso coming in and 
You start cowering in fear. Don't be fear of heaven. Be fearful of God, but not of man. And he gives the responsibility of adjudicating the more minor questions to the lower courts and the harder questions come to him. That's the first episode that Moshe mentions here. Now, it's interesting, if you remember, all the way back in the book of Exodus, in the same Parsha that talked about the Ten Commandments, we had, Parsha is called after Jethro, Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law, because over there he is being presented as the architect of that whole system of lower courts and higher courts. And the Rabban here uh, ponders the fact that Yisro, in our rendition in the book of Devarim, where we have the description of the same event, Yisro is unmentioned. So the Ramban gives a few answers. First of all, he says perhaps Jethro was humble and he didn't want his accomplishments to be broadcast to everyone. So maybe you know, Jethro can make a suggestion in the back room, so to speak. But when Moshe is speaking to the entire nation, Jethro did not want his name to be publicized. And I think it's perhaps ironic that if Jethro did not want his name publicized, yet the Torah... In the book of Exodus, names a parsha after him, and he's a big player. And perhaps the reason why Jethro gets such distinction in the Torah is precisely because he was humble, perhaps. Another answer is that Moshe did not want to bring up the thorny question of Moshe's wife. The fact that his father-in-law's Jethro would maybe raise some eyebrows amongst this nation which is another interesting idea. Perhaps the role of the leader is to not invoke things that may be shameful. Don't deliberately point out your misdeeds, or not even misdeeds, or even things that can be misconstrued as misdeeds. There's no need to mention it. There's no need to have anything that might detract from your role and from your job as a leader. There's no need to mention it. It's not that Moshe was hiding from it, it's just that Moshe felt that it's it's not right. It's, and I think it's a good lesson for us as, as leaders. You might think perhaps it's a good thing to, you know, to talk to constituents at, regarding all the things that were challenges for you or all, all the warts and all the skeletons in the closet. It's okay to have skeletons in the closet but there's no need to parade it around in front of everyone. Keep it in the closet. Uh, thirdly, the Ramban suggests is that Moshe asks, Moshe didn't follow the advice of, of Jethro. Jethro was the initiator, but the implementation was done by God. When Moshe asked God to do it, and therefore, here we're talking about the implementation of the judges, and therefore Jethro's not mentioned. So a few interesting ideas. Okay, so the next thing here discussed is after the episode or the appointment of judges, we talk about the spies. So of course, of course, the spies is what really derailed the plan. The plan was to go into the land of Israel, maybe a year or change after at the Exodus, after Sinai, and the nation told Moshe, let's send in spies to just scout out the land. And of course, when they came back, and they gave a negative report or a scary report. The people got cold feet. We don't want to go. And they said, oh, you, want, you don't want to go? Okay, you won't go. And that's why they, people, the nation lost their privilege of going into the land, but their children were given uh, that. So in verse 22, it says, Moshe tells the people, you approached me, 
And you say, let us send men ahead of us, spy and scout the land, bring back the word to us to know which angel to attack. And Moshe says, the idea was good in mine. I sent 12 men, one man for each tribe, and they, they, went, uh, they went through the land, and they brought the fruit, and they came back to us. And they said, good is the land that Hashem, our God, gives us. However, verse 26, but you did not wish to ascend. You rebelled against the word of Hashem, your God. You slandered in your tents. You didn't want to go. So a few interesting things here of, of this particular angle of criticism. Moshe are going through the misdeeds of the nation. And of course, the sin of the spies is really one of the worst. But the way it's presented is really surprising. First of all, Moshe himself says it was a good idea. So why, how could you blame the nation when Moshe himself signed off of it? And Rashi tells us that actually Moshe didn't sign off of it. Moshe signed off on the preposition to send spies, but not because he actually wanted to send spies. And he gives a fascinating uh, parable. Suppose you have a man who goes to his fellow and says, I want to buy your donkey. He says, okay, I'll sell it to you, but I, I want to take it for a test drive. You know, is, is this donkey, is it sturdy enough for my needs? He says, sure, take it a test drive. He says, well, what, can I drive it up mountains and down valleys? Of course, that's a more dangerous place for the animal. It's, it's a harder climb and descent. And maybe the person doesn't want to allow the donkey to be test drived in that manner. And the person said, yes, sure, no problem. Once the person agreed to allow his donkey to be test-drived in mountains and valleys, the person says, you know, I don't need a test-drive. I see you're so confident in the sturdiness of your animal. You're not worried that it's going to get worn down by me driving it, me riding it. I trust you that it's good. That's what Rashi says, uh, what Moshe's attitude was. Moshe was trying to show the nation that he has such confidence in the land of Israel. He's willing to send spies on their own. Who knows what they could come up with? in the hopes that the people would say, you know what? We trust you. If you're so confident, it's good enough. It's good enough for you to be willing to send spies. It's good enough for us even sight unseen. But unfortunately, the people actually pursued it and that, and that led them astray. And Moshe tells them that the spies, they went up and they stayed out of the land and they came back and they said that the, the land is very good. Now, it's, it's actually a very surprising way of presenting the story. We read the story in the book of Numbers, and it seems that Moshe here is burying the lead. Right? The most, what was the most important part of the message of the spies? That the land is bad, it's unconquerable, the nation's so mighty, the fruits are so abnormal, everyone's dying, a, na- a, na- a land that eats, consumes its inhabitants. Why is Moshe saying that the message of the spies what the land is, is that the land is very good? So Rashi says, well, the spies, it consisted of Jake, of Joshua and Caleb and ten malcontents. Ten of the spies that presented it in the opposite way. Says Moshe to the people, you should have listened to Jacob and, and Caleb. But the Ramban doesn't like that. He says, wait a minute. Jacob, not Jacob, sorry, Joshua and Caleb. Uh, the Ramban says, wait a minute. Joshua and Caleb are two out of 12. So there's 10 that say that the land is bad. 
to the state of the land is good. And somehow, Moshe, when he wants to recount this story, he tells us, well, then the spies said that it was, wait a minute, the two spies said it was good, the other ten said it was bad. The Rabban answers, well, it's two spies, but of course, on their side is God. God said the land is very good, and therefore two spies plus God is more. That's the overwhelming message that they should have heard and they didn't. And I think that, broadly, this is another very applicable lesson. The fact that uh, majority is the voice that you would hear, that's true, provided that the majority is really a majority. You know, if you have a million ants crawling on the floor, and you have one intelligent human, yet it's a million against one, but so what? Right? There's more intelligence and there's more logic on the side of the one intelligent person. You could have a billion humans and they're arguing against God and their words don't carry any weight. They hold no sway. Because yes, it's a million against one, but it's against God. You know, if there's ten spies that say it's bad, and two say it's good, but God said it's good, well, that's all you need to know. And indeed, the correct message of the, the spies was that the land is very good. Because you know why? You had Joshua and Caleb, but God said that. And the pe- people didn't hear the message. And I think that's a, just a good rule of thumb, is that the correct message is not necessarily the loudest one, it's the one that's most true. And if, therefore, the message says Moshe that they should have heard from the spies, report of the spies, but the land is very good. And Moshe tells him about the consequences of the spies. As a result, the fact that they didn't want to go into the land, therefore they lost the opportunity, and they were given the punishment and the pledge. God says, not one person from this from this generation will see it, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, and Moshe points out, I also lost out, I'm not gonna, I'm going to be replaced as well with Joshua. And the people, were, of course, were devastated when they heard that, and uh, they were told, well, you yeah, got to turn back, we're going to have to go through now this long, uh, arduous 40-year journey in the wilderness. Uh, some of the people decided to uh, just go with it, and to try to conquer Israel alone without God's support. And of course we know the story, they were absolutely destroyed in warfare by the Amori, uh, Amori nation. And the verse continues by telling us uh, that uh, where they lived in various places uh, during those 40 years, they went and they went into the wilderness, back to Yamsov, heading further south, and they were surrounding and circling Mount Seir for many days. And the rest of the Parsha is going to deal with uh, various, I guess, precepts uh, of their interactions with their enemies uh, during these 40 years. So first of all, God tells Moshe that Esau was untouchable. Uh, command the people saying, you're pouncing through the, bo- the board boundary of your of your brothers, the children of Esau, who live in Seir. Don't be fearful of them, but also don't provoke them. I'm not going to give you the land and even the right to step your foot in the land because it belongs to Esau, not to you. You remember in uh, in the book of 
Bereshis, there was, uh, in Genesis, there was the clash between Jacob and his brother. Jacob was given a bunch of stuff, but Esau was given stuff as well. One of the things here is, is that his land is untouchable. And Rashi actually tells us an alter- alternative understanding is that his land is untouchable until the Messiah comes. However, when the Messiah comes, uh, then his land will be ours. Now, it's an interesting idea uh, that's brought elsewhere in the, in, 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 in the Torah and the Talmud is the fact that when God gives someone, we've got something to someone, no one else can change it. The Talmud tells us that if God decides that one person will have one thing, well, no one else can deduct from that. A person cannot touch what is prepared for his friend as much as a hair's breadth. And additionally, a nation can't deduct from what belongs to his friend as much as a hair's breadth. And therefore, the land of Esau is untouchable for us, at least at least until Messiah comes. Similarly, the land of Moab, verse 8, don't distress with Moab, don't start up fight with them, because they come from the land, from the from Lot, and therefore, because they come from Lot, and it belongs to them, Lot did some righteous things, therefore don't uh, don't attack them. Uh, and finally. Uh, verse 17 details um, all the various nations and the various attacks. So first you have the the uh, Ammonim and where they are and what and uh, great and populous peoples, tall giants, Hashem destroyed them before you. Uh, and the Avivim, another 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 nation, and uh, the nations told to go and cross the land and. The mighty will destroy the, 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 the king of Heshbon, Sihon, the Amorite, and his nation, and do start a war with them. And it, it details all the various wars that were told to us in, um, in the book of Numbers as well. And it goes through the conquest of, of Og, and uh, it also talks, and interestingly, um, another theme is the fact that uh, in Jewish in Jewish warfare is always a last resort. We don't want to have war. We're not a nation of, of fighters. Well, we are a nation of fighters, but not, we're not a nation of violence. And here, it's interesting, in verse 22, verse 24, Moshe makes uh, peace overtures to, uh, to the nation of... Uh, of of Moab, and when that doesn't work out, then of course there is uh, there is war. And Ramban here tells us that uh, even the seven nations that actually lived in the land of Israel first, uh, and the verse tells us that Lotachayet Kol you have to destroy them all. Still, we first offer them peace terms because that's what we do. Finally, the parsha ends with the description of the land, newly conquered land on the eastern bank of the of the river and how it was given to as an inheritance for Reuven and Gadlis like we saw last week and half of Menashe. Finally, the Parsha con- concludes, I commanded Joshua at the time saying, your eyes have seen everything Hashem, your God has done uh, to these two kings. So too the Almighty will do for you once you cross over the land. Don't be f- scared of them. Don't be fearful of them. For Hashem your God, he will wage 
war for you. Such the Parsha doesn't really talk about a lot of items. It is the minor criticism at the beginning, and the recounting of the episode of the spies, the appointment of the judges, and the various wars on the eastern bank of the river. I want to just add, before we we conclude, in the uh, Bible criticism, uh, there is one of the one of the strands of, the, of their argument to question the legitimacy of the Torah is the fact that the book of Deuteronomy has a little bit of a different tone and tenor to it. And um, I think if we just read it, and you read the first verse, and the first couple of verses that introduces what it's about, you'll see that the answer to that question is right there before us. The first two and a half sections of Deuteronomy are essentially a monologue that Moshe is giving to the nation to prepare them for entering the land. Now, why is Moshe's words entering in the Torah? You know that uh, we believe, the Talmud tells us, that if any Jew that believes that Moshe wrote the Torah, then they are questioning a core principle of Judaism. Judaism says the Torah is a product of God. God's the author. Moshe, maybe he's the scribe, he's the typist, he's the He's doing the transcription work, sure, but he's not the author of the content. Well, here we see Moshe giving a speech in the Torah. And this is Moshe's words, right? So why is it in the Torah? And the answer is because God tells Moshe, take that speech that you gave to the nation and include it in my book. Thus, the book is the Almighty, but it has a quote from Moshe. So those words actually originated by Moshe. So is it very much of a shock to say that Moshe speaks a little bit differently than God? Of course, that does not imply that there's different authors. The author is still the same, but the Almighty is pulling a quote from Moshe. Next week, Parshas Vaishanan, we will continue Moshe's great monologue to the nation, and we are going to see some very iconic parts of the Torah next week, God willing. Thank you.